Dear Cosmo Babies, on this week's episode, we are chatting with special guest Mari DeMonte about the importance of art history and knowing your references. I'm your host, Annie MacArthur, and I have my co-host with me today, Russell Mays, and let's just jump right into it. Welcome, Mari. Hi. <laughs> Happy to be Yay. here. Yeah. <laughs> so excited to get through an opener on the first time. You did great. You did great. You're just giggling yes. now. You didn't do it at the time. So oh my gosh. It gets so bad sometimes. So for, for those that out there that are listening that may not know or may not have heard of your fabulousness, give us a little history on, on who you are. Yeah. Okay. Everything. So my, we want, ev- we want everything. From the I was, All of it. From yeah. the beginning. I was born at a very young age. Oh. No, uh, my name is Mari DeMonte. I am based in New York city. I've been in New York city since uh, 2005 and I, specialized specifically in men's hair and men's grooming with customer service base. So I really value a lot of high-end customer service and really a lot of that sort of aspect through barbering. And I've been doing it now for so long that it's kind of transitioned into... Barbering is is tough to kind of put a gender on anymore. So now I just call myself a short hair, hair specialist because yeah. my clients have obviously diverse in the last couple of years, especially since I've been on my own. I work in a studio in Chelsea on my own and yeah, highly, highly influenced by fine art, which is a big portion of why I even moved to New York City in the first place because I'm originally from Syracuse. And I was always like drawn to the culture and the deep references and all the inspiration and being able to just like walk in and see, I don't know, a Monet or a Starry Night or something like that just so casually was just something you can't get in a smaller college town like Syracuse. So that really influenced a lot of what I do and how I got to where I'm at. So you you started as a cosmetologist and then you yes. transitioned into just specializing in men's and short hair? Yeah. So I went to cosmetology school in Syracuse. Literally, I went to college for acting, got kicked out after three weeks. <laughs> My mom was like, can you just do, like, why don't you do hair as like a bus stop to what you really want to do in life? And I ended up absolutely loving it. And then when I, I knew for a fact that I wanted to live in New York City, that was just like my big thing. So when I was applying for jobs, I knew I wanted to specialize in cutting and not do color so much. So it just so happened that the salon that picked up my resume for an assistant gig were looking for an assistant for their head men stylist, their head barber. Um, and so I became his apprentice for about four years and then helped him open up his own spot. And it just, I just always enjoyed it. And it always just kind of happenstance became a barber. I end up getting my barbering license through my apprenticeship. So I actually now have both cosmetology and, and barber. So yes, you're so doing the shaves, there. you're doing shaves and everything. You just I used to. In, okay, right. <laughs> I used to. The pandemic really cut a lot of my services. Mm-hmm. Which, ironically enough, as a business sense, really has been helpful. Cutting back on a lot of what I was offering and it just really focusing on on quality haircuts. Because I used to do shaves and beard trims and, you know, detox, scalp massages, all that stuff. And when the pandemic hit, there was no beard trims. Obviously, everyone's face was covered. <laughs> clearly, no straight razor shaves. So it just really knocked a lot of my services down, which ended up actually really helping out, especially because with shaving, there's just so much product involved mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and a lot of extra <clears throat> gadgets and do hats that you need that it financially wasn't really making 
same amount of sense as just studying and working on haircuts. You know, it's funny how the pandemic has really changed the industry in a lot of ways that we would have never thought. You know, when I was a, I'm a cosmetologist. So when I was working before the pandemic, I was doing probably 65 to 70% women. When the pandemic hit, of course, I got all these guys calling me up. Are you working? Are you working? Can you sneak me in the Mm. back? Can you sneak me in the back? And now I bet I do probably the reverse of that. I bet I'm doing 65% men overdoing more women. Not that I don't enjoy it. It's just funny how my clientele has changed because of that, of the of availability yeah. in the pandemic. Yeah. Before the pandemic, I, you know, I had a lot of finance, uh, older clientele, a lot of lawyers, things like that. After the pandemic, it's been really interesting because a lot of my clientele are much younger than me now and they work in startups and Google and Facebook and all that tech world. So it's even interesting seeing how as a hairstylist, you don't realize that you literally witness your environment, the culture change based yeah. on your clientele, what comes in out of your chair. Yes. So it's been interesting to see New York become this younger, you know, tech kind of savvy high-end city. You know what I mean? When before it was all very finance and Wall Street kind of that old school money. Mm-hmm. So did you find a lot of the older school money was moving out of the city? And then the younger guys were coming in. And yeah. how did you promote yourself to those younger uh, clientele? Girl, I'm still working <laughs> on that. <laughs> well, it's always um, I mean, a work in progress. Uh, I am so fortunate. I really, really am fortunate because I never had to. I never had to find new clients until the pandemic hit. So for I've been on my own in the studio for over sixty years now, and so it's a bit. It's been a huge, huge learning curve for me of finding new business to come in. And I really was spoiled because I just had the same clientele and it was enough to kind of, you know, support myself. So it's been a lot of, you know, the Google analytics, the Google gods, praying Mm -hmm. to the Google gods, you know, doing my Google, Google gods, like dancing, you know, (laughs) and paying for, and essentially paying for, to, to get a marketing team to kind of help me boost the numbers Mm -hmm. on that which is something I still don't really understand. And a lot of it is just continuously showing my work on social media, which is something that I have a love-hate relationship with. I am not old, but I am older in the sense we're at 38 years old. I never grew up with a phone in my hand. So yeah. being in front of the camera or especially in my in my sense, it's because I do more high-end personal work. I really it's a it's a huge rule for me that I don't do content with clients that are paying $200 a haircut. It's just, mm-hmm. I find it really abrasive and I feel like it breaks a lot of that interaction or that comfort comfort that I have in the yeah. closed room with a client. So I feel like, I feel like it changes the focus from me focusing on the client to it, the focus being put upon me and what yeah. my needs are and what I want out of it. So it's yeah. hard for me to take video of clientele as, yeah. as well. I always have to stay late or on weekends and stuff like that to do content. Exactly. Same, same with me. It's always a a friend or a friend of a friend Mm -hmm. or someone that I met down the street or whatever it is and asking if I can cut their hair for free for some sort of photo opportunity or content or anything like that. But I think just putting your work out there, you know, it's interesting because before, you know, early two thousands, you couldn't really look at a hairstylist's work. You just assumed that they were good because someone recommended it or some, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So it's been really great for someone to 
find my name or figure out who I am and then physically go. And they already know the energy, the mood, the vibe, what I specialize in, what I'm good at when they come into the chair. So it has been a struggle building up uh, a new clientele. It's been a slow trickle, but that slow trickle has been like really great clients that I can see continuing for a long time. I don't really get one and dones anymore yeah. as I used to before. Something I want to touch on is the the social media aspect of things because with your social media in particular, something that I have always really loved about following you for as long as I have now is that you are able to have this like really beautiful blend of personal and your professional work on there. Mm -hmm. Plus that little bit of like those art history references and how you bring in all of that into you, both your personal and professional life. How were you able to kind of like, was that like a thought process or were you kind of like, I'm just using this for both. And it kind of just like beautifully happened because it really is. So it's the perfect balance in my opinion. It's really funny that you mentioned that because I remember struggling with it for a long time. I remember talking to Andrew from Andrew does hair and Mm -hmm. I was genuinely like, you know, he doesn't put anything personal on his account. He just does his haircuts and his photo stuff. And like, that's it. Mm -hmm. But I've never been able to function that way. I think even cutting hair, the reason it's, it shined to me so quickly was because there is a personality, there is your personal. And when I go into the studio, you know, some of these clients I've had for 10 years, we're not just, you know, we're talking about their kids and their job, but then we're also talking about, Hey, like, you know, did you, did you see the new Jojo O'Keefe like exhibit in the Met? Did you, mm-hmm. h- how's the training for the marathon going there? So I really struggled. I tried so hard when I first signed up for social media to be that person, to be that stylist, like only doing educating, only posting amazing haircuts, only doing all stuff. And I, and it felt so forced and so fake that it made me really dislike social media as a whole. And I had to get comfortable putting myself in front of the camera, which was slightly difficult. And then, yeah, it just not putting so much pressure on being the next main educator or whatever it was, or the Mm -hmm. next amazing hairstylist of posting just fire haircuts and being like, well, you know, what else can I provide? And what ended up happening was the the thing that I got most resonated of was the personal stuff mm-hmm. and how it, how your personal, whether I don't care how professional you are, it always leaks into what you do, Absolutely. especially as a hairstylist, you know? Absolutely. And a big part of that is like the refilling your cup. And I think a lot of hairstylists and barbers, especially in the barber culture, because it is such a hustle culture the refilling your cup aspect of what everyone does for their career is just not touched on that much. And so that's when I started incorporating a lot of like my personal stuff and just kind of one being humble, like admitting that I'm not busy all the time, admitting failures, admitting faults, and also admitting that I find inspiration, not so much in the hair community anymore, but outside and just living life Mm -hmm. because I do see people hyper, hyper, hyper focused. And then they get burnt out. Absolutely. Going back to a comment you kind of made in in the very beginning, when you said that your mom was like, oh, get into hairstyling as like a stop. A bus stop. Stop on Mm -hmm. your way. What is that like having supportive parents as a hairdresser? (laughs) Oh my God. Because your parents come from a art background too, don't they? Yes. My father is, he's originally from Liverpool, England, and he... He's now a retired mechanic, but when in the seventies, he used to go on tour as a 
tech, like a, a music tech for Elton John and like Donna Summers and Ringo and all this stuff. And then my mom is a retired art history teacher. And they met in a bar in Hollywood, which is still there, Barney's Beanery. And they got married three months later. My dad proposed when he was in Australia on tour with Elton. And so romantic. So romantic. (laughs) He doesn't remember. He was like, I don't know what drugs I was on. I don't really remember the proposal, but apparently it happened. She said yes. So it was like her asking me. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So, yes, I am wild, wildly supportive or supported by my family. I do, there are certain things like every parent, my mom, not stoked about the tattoos. Not that stoked that I like moved to New York City at the age of 19 with $60 in my pocket and this big dream to be a barber of all things. But she's, they both, especially because my dad also has a skill set job as a mechanic. Mm-hmm. They really did kind of let me navigate my own life. Uh, not saying that they didn't have opinions a lot of times, but yeah. overall, they've been very, very supportive and very proud of me and how far I've come in barbering or hairstylist. I don't think they realized how big the community is and how big you can grow in it. And it's not just Mm -hmm. that small town standing behind the chair. Yeah. So yeah, I've I've been very, very, very lucky and they get a lot of free haircuts. So that definitely helps. (laughs) The the bribery helps, you know, (laughs) absolutely. Let's go back to when you were uh, apprenticing. Mm -hmm. How was the transition from you being an apprentice to you working behind the chair? And and how did that method, did it help? Did it hurt? What was the positive and what were the negatives of it? Also that you Uh, said it was four years. Four years as an apprentice. Yeah. A long time. Most people can't do six months. Yeah. I know. I, well, this is, this is, this is the part where I'm kind of like, I know I'm not old, but I just feel older because Mm -hmm. when I came into the hairstylist world, apprenticeship in a big city like New York was, of course you did it. And of course, mm-hmm. and there was like a program and it, and it took time and you had to do certain things and it would take two years, three years, four years, whatever it was until you're able to like have the confidence to be on the floor, especially if it's high end, yeah. because my starting price, when I first started from an assistant to uh, a junior stylist was 125. And this was in 2008. So it was a, it was really expensive and unheard of at that time. Wow. Especially just doing men's hair. So, you know, my mentor at the time, he took it very, very seriously, which I appreciate now, but realistically, he didn't teach me so much about cutting hair. He just taught me how to play the customer service game. Right. Which I think in barbering, when you think about a traditional barber shops, you don't get any of that. Right. There is, there is mm-hmm. no catering. There's um, no shampoo. There's no, no consultation. No. It's just sit down and I start buzzing. Yeah. So it's interesting with social media. I think it's put hairstylists and men's groomers on the map, which I think was a long time coming, but I think it's got, it's made a lot of younger people overly ambitious and like very quick to just assume that they know the best. Yeah. Absolutely. There's an arrogance that comes from from the youth of being able to do a really blurry fade as if that's yes. the end all be all. It's been interesting being an educator because I find myself in a really unique spot where I am I am not the greatest at fades. I am not the greatest barber by any any stretch of the imagination, but because of that cosmetology background, I can talk to cosmetologists about how to understand men's grooming 
how to understand and not be so scared of a machine, how to incorporate scissor over comb work. So maybe the fade aspect isn't so intimidating. And then on the barber side, it really is teaching some of these guys straight up how to even hold hair correctly. Mm-hmm. So it's been it's been an interesting kind of having one foot in both cultures. But the one thing I have noticed is, and I think this goes across the board, but I've seen it a lot specifically in barbering, is that young cockiness of mm-hmm. I know everything and I can take I can do a great fade and I can take a great photograph. And I've had some of these high-end barbers send their clients to me in New York City and the structure of that haircut just like doesn't necessarily make sense, but it photographs really well. And I have always struggled on social media because I do real life lived in haircuts. 90% of my clients have the most boring haircut ever. I would never take a photo of a side part. You know what I mean? Like, Yeah, yeah. yeah. But they grow out well and you never feel like when you walk out of the chair that you just got a haircut. That's mm-hmm. kind of, you know, the Hollywood haircut where mm-hmm. you always look good and no one quite knows why. Like, because it, it, you never see Brad Pitt with a fresh haircut, you know, he's always yeah. just casually cool. And unfortunately, that doesn't photograph well and that doesn't sell very well, as opposed to the blurry fade. And being a, an apprentice for four years truly humbled me. And that transition to back to what we were talking about before, like that transition from being an apprentice for that long to being a junior stylist was tough. Because again, it was a different time. I don't think we understood our rights as much in the early 2000s as an apprentice. (laughs) So it went from like $50 a day. And then whatever tips you made was basically like a glorified shampoo person, which I think now is illegal. I think it was illegal back then. We just didn't know any better. And then it went from that to not getting paid anything and just making commission. So I end up having to get a second job as a, at a bar to cover the basis of my career. And in hindsight, that's bullshit. That should yep. never, be, never, ever be the case. We just didn't know any better in 2008. Mm-hmm. And I was very young. And that is something that I really appreciate that's changed in the industry. I do feel like when I first started, there was a lot of big names in here. So I was getting away with way too much. Oh, yeah. Way too much. Yes. Yep. So it's definitely social media spread that a bit and people are much more aware of what they deserve and what they should deserve. Like you should Mm -hmm. always get paid. Well, I think a lot of those salons that were skirting the legality of pay ended up going out of business because it was so quick for people to leave. They're like, I'm not doing this anymore. And once you build somebody up and they leave and you don't have a whole lot of longevity if you don't have a good solid foundation of people that are working for you. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And I've always, I've never, I never want to own my own salon because I'm too emotional. (laughs) I would take everything way too personally. I would be the worst boss in that case. Right. So, and then, and and there's also a point where I would probably want to try to do too much. I would want to like offer health insurance. I would want to do like a 401k. I'd want to do all these things because a lot of hairstylists just don't have that sick leave, you know, paid vacation. It's just not something that has ever been offered to me. Yeah. In any salon I've worked in. There's um, just not enough of a profit margin to offer it. I mean, they're, they're, when I'm giving someone 45, 50, 60%, there's not any profit because by the time you pay the, the taxes on the payroll and then the, the workman's comp taxes and then the taxes for owning the salon and mm. then the rent and the electricity, you're ended up 
in the hole. So I end mm-hmm. up paying more than everybody else as, as mm-hmm. an owner. So it's mm-hmm. just not profitable. I I love the idea of being able to provide all those things like a legit business, but the way that the salon business is set up right now, it's just impossibly, it's not profitable. Mm-hmm. And I, and I blame a lot, a little bit on like the, the, we're at a big turning point in cosmetology. I think mm-hmm. like the last 10 years, we've been at a massive turning point. And I kind of blame a lot of people before that turning point because a lot it was, you can't raise your prices. You're going to lose clients. Don't charge this much. Like any man who's yeah. any man who's spending more than five, $10 on a haircut yeah. is bullshit. And it became yeah. all this weird ego thing to lower our prices, to keep yeah. us under, under yeah. wraps. Yeah. And I remember when I first started educating and admit for the longest time, I would be ashamed to admit how much I charged because these barbers would look at me as if I had just like, you know, like chased down their dog or something like that. Like they just kind of were so aghast and like offended. Well, because it makes you realize, wait a minute, what am I doing wrong? Cause she's not better than I am. I can do a better faith than her. Why am I not charging $200 for a haircut? You know, but they don't look at all the things that go into the service. It's not, how quality the haircut is. It's all the things that go into it. It's the chair side manner. It's the consultation. It's setting the tone when they walk in. It's greeting them. It's the shampoo that barbers don't want to do. And, mm-hmm. and it's the whole nine yards, teaching them how to fix their hair and, and mm-hmm. making them feel human, making them feel heard. That's that's an acquired skill that's not easily acquired. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And it's been interesting to see slowly i feel like it's changing slowly but we still we still are, are not paying ourselves enough yeah yeah i meet a lot of amazing hairstylists who are like the head of big clipper companies and they have all these followers on social media and then they charge like 40 50 bucks a haircut which is great which is great and they're comfortable with that but mm-hmm. i do feel like it still is somewhat small thinking because yeah. right you you do want to be healthy as you get older this is a really physical job the fact that you're paying yourself just enough to not have health insurance or not have a 401k yeah. or not have a backup, like you should be charging enough to cover all of that. And clients, and it's always been a weird secret to clients that we live that way. And mm-hmm. it's also like educating the client as respectfully as you can, that all of that extra stuff, taxes, healthcare, yeah. blah, blah, is in that mm-hmm. price point. So it's like, oh my God, she's, she's, she's raising her prices again. And it's like, yeah, mm-hmm. because my insurance just went up, Yeah, you know? Mm-hmm. And I, and I don't think clients really understand that, especially, especially any of them who've never been in the service industry. So, yeah. Yeah. Going back to talking about like your social media and stuff like that. I feel like if you were to take a look at your social media in particular, you can see where that higher level of quality comes into play, not only with the angles that you're getting in your photos of your clients, but the way that you present the personal things of the things that you do in your personal life, the running, the the going to the museums, having those art history references. And it, it all, I feel like focuses into, I have a full understanding of what to expect when I come and sit in your chair and the level of service that I'm going to receive from you, I feel is fully put out there, you know? Mm-hmm. Because someone that does have some of those understandings and the history that you do with having gone through an apprenticeship for so long and having that background in art history and and an actual love for it and not just like a, you know, for me, it's like, okay, I I do love going to museums and stuff, but I don't have that like 
deeper. I mm. wish I did. I wish I could like go and just stare at a painting, which I probably could, but I feel like that's not like what I'm going to do, like how you do, like you are seeking these things out. You are going and looking and appreciating on a much different level than I will ever be able to. And I feel like that translates directly into the level of service and understanding from a, like a pure artist perspective of sitting in your chair, which then higher raises that price point, at least mm-hmm. in my brain, like that's how it all correlates together versus someone else who might just be showing like the back of someone's fade over and over again. I would have a expectation of a lesser price service and a different expectation of what would come mm-hmm. sitting in that chair. Yeah. Well, yeah. The same thing with, if I can jump in the same thing with the restaurant, if I go to a Michelin star restaurant, I have a certain level of expectation of quality. I have a certain level of expectation of decor. And of course, a certain expectation for what I'm going to pay. If I'm going to norms or Denny's, that expectation changes. So (laughs) I'm going to cater to those type of clientele that can appreciate where I want to be in my career. I always, it's a big part of like when I'm teaching too, is that there's a pie, right? If you were to take what you do and slice it up, really be honest, how much of the percentage is actually the haircut? It shouldn't be more than 25%. Mm If you are relying more than 25% on the actual haircut, like then you're not, you, you're limiting yourself. You're limiting yourself. So that for me, the haircut is 25%. And then there's, you know, the customer service aspects. Then there's the decor, the music, the energy, Mm -hmm. all that stuff. And that, when you put all of that together, that's what the price point is. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's again, a thing that I don't think a lot of people, younger people quite understand because there is this level of who's more famous, the client or the, or, or yourself. And the client should always be the main story of the novel that you're writing once they're in the chair. Mm -hmm. And I don't want, I would love it if like a client obviously appreciates me and respects me, but I don't want anyone to come in and because it's like a name brand or because it's like a big hype thing. Mm -hmm. I want them to come in and immediately feel comfortable that they can talk to me, comfortable to tell me what they really want and be able to quite literally let their hair down. Because a lot of these guys, Mm -hmm. that 45 minutes is like a a moment where they get to turn off before they go back to work or to their family or to whatever it is. So I try really hard to make that a safe space and make it so that I am just a leading character and not the main character. Yeah. Or like a a support, a supporting actor. And it's a, that's a big part. That's a huge part of the price point. Mm -hmm. I, at the, whenever a new client comes in, we go through this whole spiel. I do the big, you know, we do the intro and the, and the consultation, then we do the shampoo, then I do the cut, then we do a rinse, then I go into a whole 15-minute spiel about different ways to style their hair and what sort of products they need. And then I give them my card and I tell them, I'm like, listen, you're not allowed to Google anything about your hair anymore. That's gone. Do not Google anything about your hair. There, This is my cell phone number on this card. If you need anything, do not hesitate to text message me. If you have any questions about product, if you need questions about whether or not it's time for a haircut or not. If you've anything hair related, please, please, please ask me first. If you're traveling and you need a recommendation, I have like a load of amazing stylists that I could recommend, like that sort of thing. And that, that whenever I do that and like give them the card and shake their hand and look them in the eye and say that, it's like, it's like finding an accountant 
that like gets you for the first time. You know what I mean? Because totally. I hate, I hate yeah. money. So if I get an amazing accountant who's like, don't worry, I'll le- I'll explain this to you. I'll, I'll walk you, I'll like hold your hand. We, we're going to get through this together. I'm like, say less. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I don't care how much I'm going to pay. Please just like help me. I'm a baby. I don't know how to do this. And so that is the big hook for me when I have a new client that comes in. And it's not the haircut. It's that trust and understanding Absolutely. And that personal touch, you know yeah. what I mean? I would like to, to make a point for any young stylist or young barber that's listening to this right now that, yes, you are studying technique, but what she just said was the technique of customer service that is hard for most people to articulate. And it is mm-hmm. the ability to bond and relate to the client, not just over the hair, but over mm-hmm. making them feel confident, secure, heard, and that they have a confidant, a conciliar to help them with their hair. Mm-hmm. That's when people think, oh, well, yeah, mm-hmm. customer service. Yeah, I say, hey, how you doing? You want some coffee? That's my customer service. No, 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 no. It's the ability to talk to them on a level that they can understand. Now, if it's only, if you can only talk to car guys, what's going to happen when a stockbroker comes in? You need to learn the vocabulary and the vernacular and how to talk to a stockbroker. And then you need to learn the vocabulary of how to talk to an actor and how to talk to an accountant mm-hmm. and how to talk to a doctor. And the mm-hmm. more people that you can relate to and talk to, the faster and the busier that you're going to grow. Yeah. That's the personal, personal 100%. service mm-hmm. that you need and, to learn. And that's a big, big, big part when we were talking about art history and running and blah, blah, blah. You have to live life. The working and grinding behind the chair and working on your days off and squeezing people in. The reason I'm so passionate about art history, the reason I'm so passionate about checking out museums and new exhibits, the reason that I have a huge range of friends and do all sorts of different things is because when I stand behind that chair, I I want to be relatable on all fronts. I want mm-hmm. to be somewhat well-knowledged. I want to read, not just, you know nonfiction books books about comic (laughs) books or whatever. I want to read things that are going to inspire me. The more inspired I am, the more likely that I can relate to someone. You know, Mm -hmm. I have one client, Robin, we always talk about books. I have another client. We only Mm -hmm. talk about running. I have another Mm -hmm. client that we talk about. And it, the more you live your life, the more you are better at customer service, the more you expand yourself and as being relatable. And that is to me, what makes what we do so special. I wanted to add in there onto your pie and cause like for something for me that when like I'm teaching assistants or like anything like that is that into that pie, you want to put like education in that as well. Like that goes towards part of your price point, how much education, how much training, but it's so much more than that. And everything that you just said, both Mary and Russell with doing those outside things and educating yourself on people is such a big part of that as well. And like, like how we were saying, like the the art history and the references are so, so important. And that goes into the education part of it, but it's a human experience education Mm -hmm. that is going to allow you to then up that price point in the future Mm -hmm. and allow yourself to grow bigger and bigger. If you meet someone that's never been anywhere, the stories and the experience that they have to draw from is very small. Mm-hmm. I can talk to you about how magnificent the Eiffel Tower is and the smell of the crepes and the river sand right there. But until you go, you don't really understand mm. it. Once yeah. you're standing there, you're like, ah, now I get it. So if we're going to 
aspire to be in the top 10% of doing hair or barbering or whatever, if you're going to be in the top 10% of anything, you have to have a varied life experience to draw from, not just working behind the chair and hearing stories from clients. Mm -hmm. You have to go and create stories of your own so that Mm -hmm. you're more relatable to a wider, broader area of people. It's just not, it's, it's more than technical ability. Yes, absolutely. I, even though I do charge what I charge. Realistically, I, I'm broke. Bitch, I have so much goddamn debt from the pandemic. Ugh. But a lot of it is also I'm, I'm bad with money and travel is a huge, huge priority for me. Mm-hmm. And ironically enough, the, the main places, the more worldly places that I've been to, Berlin, Spain, Ethiopia, was all through running, all through my running experiences. None of it had anything to do with hair. Mm. And I'm on the board for a nonprofit for young women in Ethiopia for like scholarship money and like money for athletics. Is that girls and, who run? Yeah, girls gotta run. Girls gotta run. But I'll, I'll, pl- right. I'll plug I'll plug that in. Uh, yes. So girls gotta <laughs> run. Always needs donations. I'm gonna be running the marathon in DC for them October 28th. So if you'd like to donate, it's girlsgotterun.org. And yeah, so. A lot of times my clients forget that my life does exist outside of that studio, outside of the hair industry. And so when I do bring up stories like that, like, oh yeah, I remember when I was in Ethiopia, did it? And they're like, mm-hmm. and they'll be, and they, and, and that's something that I love is shocking people because they have a certain mentality of what a hairstylist is supposed to be. Yes. Yes. You know, and it doesn't take a lot to shock people mm-hmm. when you're a hairstylist. It, it, the, I always say the most, the one thing that's more expensive than time is energy. Because like, if you ask me to do taxes for five minutes, as opposed to, I don't know, standing in a museum for five hours, right? Like it doesn't even matter about time. It's the energy that you put into it or the energy that sucks out of you. It takes such little energy to do the things that you actually love and want to do. Yes. And the reward is one, you're happier, you're healthier, you're more worldly, and you have you have another card in your deck that you can use to expand your clientele, yeah. another experience you can have to find new people, another way to kind of spread spread your gospel of whatever it is and find new people to like come and visit you. I've always been a huge, huge, huge fan of that. And I've always been anti-hustle culture. I would rather be somewhat edged on on poor and happy mm-hmm. than standing behind the chair and have a load of money that I don't have time to spend on. I want to mm-hmm. spend time with my family. Yeah. I want to see my nephews. I want to I want to travel. I want to do all these great experiences. There are people who live to work and people who work to live. And I I want to kind of mix those two together. I love what I do. I love everything about what I do. But at the end of the day, it's I get paid. And the reason I get paid is so I can live my life. And I think that's kind of lost a bit. And when we're talking about references and talking about inspiration yeah. and all that stuff, I, you know, I, there's so much about hair that I don't know anything about on just a worldly level. Like even just going to Africa and being like, I don't know anything about product and hair structure and how culturally it's different here than anywhere else Mm -hmm. or even going to Europe, right? Mm -hmm. They style and do men's hair so much differently than we do here in the United States. And you pick up all these small things and you're, and it's like, you're, I want to be excited to be behind the chair after I come back from a place, you know? Definitely. Mm -hmm. Okay. I have a question for you. It's like 
slightly off topic, but I have like personal (laughs) curiosity with it. Do you ever, because like I said, like I, unfortunately, I, I want to be someone that goes into a museum or into a gallery and be able to spend hours looking at paintings and deconstructing them in my mind and just having like a deep sense of appreciation for them. But I think part of the reason that I don't do that very often is because I end up feeling super guilty about spending the time doing something like that. Have you ever experienced that? Or like, and if like, were you able to like change that or like change your mindset around it? Because like I was, it, it, it is part of our education, I think, as hairdressers, like we are artists at our core and having that understanding or sense of appreciation for art on all levels, no matter what the type of art it is. Like, have you ever had any of that like guilt or like roadblocks with doing those things? Dude, like <laughs> guilt is the underlying feeling that I have every day, all the time. Like guilt and fear or guilt or or just feeling guilty for doing everything is literally the number one guest in my mental capacity always. And I have to struggle to not feel guilty. It's a practice every single day. It truly is a practice every single day. Yeah. And the only way that I could say that I'm able to battle that is not putting the pressure on when I do get to do things on my own. Mm-hmm. Meaning, okay, so on my birthday, I took the day off and I was like, I'm going to go to the MoMA. There is a Georgia O'Keeffe exhibit. I'm obviously, I am crazy obsessed with Georgia O'Keeffe. So I was so excited about seeing this exhibit. It was the last week it was on. It was my birthday, blah, blah, blah. I think I was in there probably 10 minutes and then I left. And I was a little, it wasn't the greatest exhibit of her work, but Mm -hmm. I'm glad that I went. And me in the past would have been like, I just spent $25 to go in the moment. I should be seeing everything and going to, you know, going on every floor and staring at things and feeling a deep appreciation. Yeah. And it was kind of like, you know, I did what I wanted to do. I'm glad I saw it. I feel like getting a gin and tonic instead. And that kind of like, I, I filled my cup enough. I don't need to, because I have this free time, really like fill it with all the stuff that maybe I'm not feeling that day. Yeah. You know what I mean? So a lot of it is truly not beating myself up when I have these like fake expectations in my head mm-hmm. of what I'm supposed to accomplish specifically on my time off. Yeah. Because I do think that's a big part of it is oh, I finally have time off. I have to do the laundry, see my family, plus have some me time, plus try to read a book for 15 minutes, plus doing all this stuff. And it's like, yeah. you know, let's relax. Yeah. If you're doing something because you feel like you have to do it, stop doing it. Yeah. You know, I know. I'm like, I really, I, again, I feel like, like having these other experiences beyond either standing behind the chair or going to hair education or things that specifically involve hair itself. Like I, I know that for me, I always end up with this like massive guilt behind it. Even if it's just trying to read a book for 20 minutes and take the time to expand my knowledge on whatever subject it is. And I, I don't know. Like I definitely, that was like one of the things I wanted to ask. Cause I'm like, I, again, social media, you know, it like is kind of a mind fuck altogether, but I look at your social media in particular and I'm like, dude, one, you're so cool. You're DJing on the weekends. You have this incredible <laughs> record collection. You're not only an incredible hair artist behind the chair, but you're an educator, you're traveling, you're running, you are going to museums, you're doing things that seem to like 
really like fill you as a person. And I look at that and I'm like, why can't I get there? Why can't I leave my house? You know? Yeah. I just want to touch grass occasionally. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Honestly, that's one. It's so interesting to see how other people perceive me on social media. It's like, oh, you're so cool. And I'm like, I literally am wearing an ankle brace right now. I've like lost all my toenails from running. Like I don't feel very cool most of the time. But again, I think it's just when I'm at work, I'm at work. I'm not on my phone. You know, I I try really hard to whatever I'm doing, I'm doing, even if it's for 10, 20 minutes. But if that's what I'm doing, that's what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. I have actually gotten in trouble a few times with my partner about this. When I'm hanging out with a friend, I really, really make a conscious effort to put my phone away Mm -hmm. and really focus on what they're saying and really kind of put myself and you know, focus my energy on that person because my free time is valuable. And I'm obviously with that person for a reason and vice versa. Like it's really hard the older you get to just make time for your friends. Mm -hmm. So, and it's the same thing with work. Like when I'm at work, I'm fully at work to the point that sometimes when I get home, I'm like dead, you know, but my, my, my battery is, I have to sit in (sighs) silence in a dark room and stare at my phone and disassociate for 45 minutes. (laughs) Yeah. But I try really hard to kind of prioritize and what if that's what I'm gonna do, that's my that's what I'm gonna do. And I'm gonna allow myself, whether it's five minutes, 20 minutes, three hours, whatever it is, but that's what I've decided to do. And it's a practice. It definitely, definitely is a practice. And a big thing that's helped me too is doing like morning gratitude stuff. I know that sounds a little like goopy, but I do really love enjoying starting my day with writing just like four things that I'm grateful for. And then I go back, I try to go back at the end of the day and write three or four things that happened today that I feel gratitude for. And a lot of times it's like, I was able to read on the subway, you know what I mean? Or grabbing a drink with, you know, my friend Katie or doing a haircut I really loved, you know, was really proud of in the shop. And that also kind of helps me. And so that when I am doing the good things that I asked for, that I'm trying not to get distracted. Yeah. I actually do that same thing. And I, I have an alarm set on my phone every day at the same time. And I have a journal and I like do all that gratitude stuff. And mm-hmm. it, is, it makes a huge difference. It, it really I, does. I did it begrudgingly for a long time. My yeah. therapist was like, you should try doing it. You try doing it. And then now I am one of those people where I'm like buying the gratitude I'm journal totally, for all of my I, friends. All the, God damn it, Mari. Yeah. It's <laughs> like, no, no it same. really makes a difference. <laughs> yeah. Um, it took a while. It took me years probably to like, fully understand or like even be able to see the difference in my life life like five years ago to today. And it's like that gratitude practice is. And that that was a big part of the pandemic because my, so during the pandemic, I stopped doing everything. I didn't run. I could not finish a book to save my life. I couldn't do anything. I just, it just, the city was a wild, crazy place. Not working was stressful. My, I felt my value had like deteriorated which is like a very capitalistic bullshit thing to think, but <laughs> I just didn't know what to do. And the longer I stayed inside and didn't do anything, the more guilty that I felt. I'm like, I should be learning a language. I should be doing some sort of whatever. And I just did not have the energy. I just did not have it. So, you know, that's when I started seeing a therapist, which really helped. And that's when I started doing these small practices of, you know, turning your phone off and really Mm -hmm. sitting down to a person in front of you or FaceTiming a friend or whatever it is and really focusing on them or 
And it doesn't have, you know, and it also can be a little ratchet. Like you could just learn how to make a new cocktail or something and just totally. do something for yourself. It doesn't have to be this like read a book and fill, you know, yeah. philosophy and art. Like literally you can make like a frozen margarita if that's the energy <laughs> that you want to put into. But like the wee joys, right? The wee joys mm-hmm. of life. Because I've, when everything was gone, when, you know, work was gone during the pandemic, seeing friends being social was gone and you're just left alone with your own things. You re- I really had to be like, what really actually makes me happy? Yeah. Without the distractions of the drama of work or the drama of family and friends, like what really makes me happy? Absolutely. And what are the things I really miss? Yeah. And I missed that. I missed loading in all of the the good stuff. I missed seeing art. I missed talking to people. I missed, you know, being that yeah. sort of cultural sponge. Yeah. Oh my God. Okay. I feel like I could talk to you for like hours and hours. <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to ask one more question. I have one more okay, question okay. that I want to ask. And it's, it's definitely, it is like by far, like my most favorite question that I ask people. And actually, I think I may have already asked you this when Ooh. we did an interview with you years ago for the hair nerds website, mm. but I'm going to ask it again because it might be different now. Um, <laughs> but what advice would you give yourself you today? What advice would you give the younger version of you back in oh, cosmetology wow. school In cosmetology school? What, what advice I'd give myself? I would say I would probably give my younger self, you, you know, trust yourself, give you, give yourself more, more value. I think a lot when I was young, I did a lot of things that I didn't want to do. Did a lot of like, you know, peer pressure things or just agreed to things or would do projects I didn't feel like doing or dumb stuff to like get my name out there, whatever. Mm -hmm. And I would just be like, yeah, don't, if it feels off, don't do it. It was really, really, really hard to say no to things when I first came to the city. And it like just always put me around weird people or in a weird situation or just something that I just wasn't aligned to. Yeah. And I wasted a lot of years doing that crap. So I would say, yeah, keep value on myself and just say no, learn how to say no. Yeah. That's a hard word to learn how to say, you know? Yeah. It's a hard sentence. <laughs> no, it's a very hard sentence. Very complex. A lot of emotion it behind it. But, you know, thank you so much for coming on and, and sharing your insight and, and giving us some, some motivation and some aspirations to work towards. You know, I think it's been great. Um, please follow us on. Oh, geez. What do I say? Annie, help me. What am I saying? <laughs> We're on everything. Oh, yeah. Give us a give us a review on your favorite uh, podcast app. Let us know what you'd like to hear in the future. Drop a line in our DMs. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for having right, me, you guys. Yes, thank you so Super much. Super honored. Right. Yeah. Yay. Awesome.